Mrs. John Huggins and the chaplain of Barry, but I know most of you here. So this morning, um, BP asked me if I'd contribute to the Colossians series that we've been going through as a church, which I was uh, very happy to do because Colossians is just one of my favorite books of the New Testament. I go back to it again and again. It's just so encouraging, so packed full of good stuff. And to, to preach on the next passage, which is a passage I love um, as well. So excited for us to pick back up with Colossians chapter 2 this morning. I've got to read our passage in just a minute, but before doing so, let's take a moment to take two or three deep breaths together. Our gracious God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We're thankful that we can sit here in your presence. Thankful that we can be refreshed by you in true faith, hope, and love. That we can cast all of our cares upon you and put them into your strong and wise and loving, capable hands. Please help us to do that even now in these moments, Lord. Would you please draw near and unburden every heart and fill us afresh with your spirit to empower us for the next steps in life, whatever they may be. We are here to say we are yours, we need you, we want to draw near in Christ's name. Amen. The passage we're looking at this morning is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Please follow along as I read it aloud. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in Him, who is the head of every ruler and authority." In him you also were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in, your, in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the word of God. We pick up sort of in the middle of a thought in chapter 2, but it's actually the kind of central key point in the text. Verses 6 and 7 really are a summary statement of what the whole letter of Colossians is about. This is the main point, the thing that the apostle wants us to hear and walk away with and not forget. He's saying that Jesus is the most important person. He is the one that you've come to know and believe in, And he wants us to walk in him, to 
take Jesus seriously in every aspect of life. He says that you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. You know, every word in that phrase is important. The Messiah King, Jesus, the world's true Lord and Master. It's very similar to Philippians chapter 2 where the apostle writes that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, that he would be the one who has first place, who's preeminent, as the text has already said. In fact, everything up to this point has kind of been setting this up. He's been trying to show them, this is who Jesus is that you've come to believe. I want you to see him for all he's worth. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one that created everything. Everything was actually made by him and for him. He's meant to have first place. Not only that, all of God's wisdom lives in Jesus as it says in verse 3 earlier in the chapter, Christ Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He also has already told us that Jesus is the mysterious work of God, what God has been up to, and now it's been revealed. He is the ultimate preeminent one. And what the apostle wants us to do is to be captivated in our mind, in our imagination by Jesus and all that he is. He wants our hearts to be captured by his love and mercy. And he wants our lives to be compelled by Christ to live for him. Captivated, captured, compelled to live for him. And so he says, just as you have come to receive him, live in him. Then the apostle goes on to give us some metaphors. But before I say that, just this whole idea, this sort of the This is the main point of Colossians and of what I want to emphasize this morning is this taking Jesus seriously for all he's worth. Lately, I've been thinking about that a lot and it's it's become kind of a personal mantra for me. What does it mean to take Jesus seriously in this moment or facing this topic or this issue or subject? If I'm a Christian, what does that look like? It's become a kind of burden and pursuit of my life. It's become the thing that I hope to most Uh, pass on and encourage in my children, in my students, in our church. Let's be people who take Jesus seriously. Let's see the treasure that he is and all the goodness that there is in Jesus and just give our lives to it. This is what we are called to. This is the great gift of being a Christian, is having Jesus. He's the great thing about Christianity, You know, when people say, what's so great about being a Christian? We shouldn't point to ourselves. We point to him. He's the great thing about being a Christian. He's why it's worth being one. He's worth following, trusting, no matter what. No matter what the questions are or the struggles are with life or however many things are confusing and we don't know, we have in him the embodiment of God's word, God's presence, God's wisdom with us. This past week, many Christians celebrated the Feast of the Annunciation, which is a a feast during the Christian liturgical calendar that remembers when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and announces to her that she will be the mother of Jesus. And it highlights her humble and receptive response. Let it be to me according to your word. In many ways, Mary is the model disciple because from that moment, Her whole life was all about Jesus. Until she drew her dying breath, every moment was about him. She's probably just going about her day as usual when the angel appears. Who knows what she's thinking about? But from that moment, everything is different. 
Her life will never be the same. She gives it completely to him. So back to the passage. When Paul tries to illustrate what does it mean to live your life in him, he gives this sort of series of metaphors, rooted, built up, established. He's saying, I want you to be rooted like a tree, deep roots in Christ. Think of Psalm 1, that those who meditate on God's word are like trees planted by streams of water who always bear fruit. He said, I want you to be built up like a strong house, like a, like a Greg Huggins house, you know, in, 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 this, in this town. You get one of those, you got a strong, good house. He probably don't want me to say that because he wants to retire eventually. Or to be established like a legal law or declaration. It's his way of saying, I want you to be deep. I want you to be strong and steady, fruitful and consistent. And the crowning mark of that work would be that you are thankful. Do you notice that? Abounding in thanksgiving. There's a couple of words that pop up several times throughout this short Colossian letter. And being thankful is one of those themes. So is wisdom. It's almost as if Paul is saying here, the mark of a mature Christian is that they are thankful. They abound with thanksgiving. Let's pause and think about that for a second. There was a medieval mystic monk named Meister Eckhart who once said, if the only prayer you ever say in your entire life is thank you, it will be enough. Now perhaps it's overstated to make a point, but it does make an important point. To be a thankful person implies a whole lot of other qualities, right? To be humble, receptive. It's an expression of faith. It reveals a life that's aimed in God's direction. A mature Christian is thankful. Rather than living a life of cynicism or being critical about everything, the mature soul attaches to and delights in any time God's truth or goodness or justice or beauty shine through and gives thanks. After this verse, when you get to verse 8, he's sort of had his summary statement. Now he's going to move into applying and giving some cautions along the way. So if you're going to be rooted and established in Jesus and abound with thanksgiving, you need to be careful that you are, as verse 8 says, not taken captive by philosophy or empty deceit. Let's talk about that for a second. The word philosophy, of course, just means love of wisdom. And there have always been Christian philosophers, and theology itself is a form of philosophy related to God. So the exhortation is, you know, stay away from the philosophers, you know, and um, don't practice this discipline. In fact, he's already said Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom, and he wants us to love him. So there's a sense in which Jesus is the true philosophy, the true philosopher. So it's not so much an exhortation to avoid this practice or discipline, but it's a reference to things going on at the time in the first century Greco-Roman world. There are lots of philosophical schools on offer that most people know about. You read about some of them in the Bible, the Stoics, the Epicureans, but you also had the Cynics. You had the Platonist of the time at the academy. You had the peripatetic philosophers at Aristotle's Lyceum. And all of these are sort of vying for 
place and position in society, trying to convince people their way of seeing things is the right way. But there was also a lot of religions on offer too in the Greco-Roman world. It's actually very religious, the Greco-Roman world was, but religion at the time, aside from Judaism, had nothing to do with morality. So people could actually be immoral and religious at the same time because the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses themselves are immoral. They're just powerful, and so you wanted them on your side. In addition to that, you had a lot of local mystery cults with their claims to have secret wisdom and knowledge, and they had secret ceremonies and initiations. And most people who lived in Greco-Roman society, like the city of Colossae, would have been syncretistic in their approach. That is, they would have syncretized or blended together elements from all of these schools of thought or from a couple of them. A little of this, a little of that, and we'll make up something that seems satisfying or exciting. That's the context in which these early Christians are living. There also seems to have been some form of Judaism that came into conflict with early Christianity, especially the type that tried to pressure Gentile Christians to Judaize. And basically that would mean taking on circumcision as a part of their practice. Uh, sometimes there were people, even Gentiles, who would mix little pieces of Judaism with their Greco-Roman deities and try to form a new thing. Paul basically regards all of this as clever-sounding nonsense. <laughs> he thinks that these, these ideas are totally disconnected from truth, from reality, but they're trying to claim your allegiance. They're even trying to control you. And often Paul suspects that there's something dark and sinister behind them, evil powers trying to capture you. So he says, make sure no one takes you captive. According to Paul, Christ is the true philosophy, the true wisdom. He, he's saying to the, to the community, you already have all that you need in Christ. So listen to him, not to them. When you have him, you have everything. You have the best, the fullest, the one who's actually in charge of everything and who knows everything. In fact, the one in whom all of God's wisdom dwells. I think this is a really relevant point because in our own world, there are all kinds of cultural and political ideologies vying for our attention and our allegiance. I think these are found on the cultural political left and the right and perhaps everywhere in between, trying to make some claim. This is what you should believe. This is what you should think about whatever subject, about the good life, about what's right or wrong, identity, sexuality, gender, marriage, race, or nationalism, or the like. You can see it spreads the whole spectrum. It's interesting, even during the days of the Roman Empire, they had so exalted their identity into a deity that they create a god called Roma. And they build temples to Roma, the empire or the nation, and call everyone to give their allegiance to it. It's very similar to when the British Empire was around the world, the idea of Britannia, or perhaps America, or perhaps the self, the sovereign self that somehow knows everything, and um, we should give ultimate allegiance to it and exalt that identity into a deity. The point is here, the relevant point from Paul would be, listen, Jesus is the one in whom all God's wisdom and fullness dwell. He's actually higher, better, 
over all of those things, whether it be Rome or Britannia, America or the self. He is more worthy of our allegiance, more worthy of everything than those other things that are calling out for our belief or our trust or our obedience. And I tend to think, especially anything found on the internet, on TV or or the radio. N.T. Wright in his commentary on the book of Colossians says this, all power structures, both ancient and modern, whether political, economic, or racial, have the potential to become rivals to Christ. I'll pause there for a second. Remember, Jesus himself says, no one can serve two masters. That things will try to be a master alongside Jesus. Oh, you don't have to reject Jesus. Just take Jesus alongside this. That like, sounds like the devil, doesn't it? And Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. So N.T. Wright says, these things try to become potential rivals to Christ, beckoning his followers to submit themselves to them in order to find a fuller security. And I think that's really what it's about, our longing for security. The invitation is as blasphemous as it is unnecessary. Christ has no rivals. His people need no one but him. And so Christ offers and gives his people a fullness, a security an abounding, overflowing kind of life that is capable of bearing fruit and giving thanks, unlike all these other things. And isn't that good? And let's talk about the fullness thing for a second. Verse 9 says, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he says, and you have come to fullness in him. Jesus has fullness from God, and he gives it to his people Think about the idea of fullness for a moment. How do you understand that word, that concept? It might help us to think about it if we think if we contrast it with emptiness or exhaustion. Perhaps you can identify with those words. Would any of you say, and I'm not looking for hands, um, that you've been in a season of emptiness or a season of exhaustion? I, th- I tend to think that almost everyone has, the last couple years especially, of constantly switching, moving, being worried or concerned about this, that, or the other, like big things, lots of big things close together in a short amount of time that we've been navigating. Oftentimes, I find myself just try- kind of running from one thing to the next, trying to do my best to steward or take care of or do what I need to do for this, and don't pause to consider, how am, I, how am I doing? And there's been occasion where I've had a friend ask me that, how are you doing? And if you're my friend, you know that my most common answer to that is, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kind of going. There's times when I stop and think about it and think, I don't think I'm doing really well, but I don't have time to think about it. <laughs> I need to go do the next thing. That often we can feel like we're just running on empty, on fumes. That is a reminder to us that in a broken world, with broken people, broken systems, broken ideas, we cannot get fullness from the world. And we cannot get fullness even from within. The self is not sufficient for the self. It has to come from somewhere else. Our fullness has to come from the one who has it, and who gives it freely to his people. That is Jesus. 
that is actually the only way we'll ever be able to repair any of the brokenness in this world by not expecting our fullness to come from the things we're trying to repair. Let me say it again. Our fullness cannot come from the things we're trying to repair. The only way we'll have power to repair is if fullness comes from the one who has it. Again, N.T. Wright says, God intends to flood the lives of men and women and ultimately the whole creation with his own love, power, and richness. And he's already begun to, to put that into effect through Christ and by his Holy Spirit. It's remarkable. It would sound too good to be true if it weren't here in the text <laughs> that he's saying Jesus has this thing, this elusive thing you can't get anywhere else in the world, fullness. And guess what? He is eager to give it to you. That's good news. The rest of the passage goes on to talk about how it is that Jesus is able to give us this fullness because he's dealt with the thing that is the source of our brokenness, that is our sin, our spiritual deadness. And he has a very tight, tightly argued, uh, it's it's sort of a, a passage that's thick in terms of its reasoning and its illusions. It's hard to explicate in a single sermon. But he goes, he starts talking about spiritual circumcision and saying this is the thing that you need not the old sign of the old covenant which was circumcision circumcision was put on all israelite boys as children as a way of marking them out as a way of saying you belong to the covenant people you're a part of that group where god has promised to be at work and in whom god has promised to be at work And so to Gentile Christians, they might wonder, well, if to be a real Christian, do we need to embrace this this Jewish practice of circumcision? The Apostle Paul says, no, you don't need that. You've already experienced a spiritual circumcision through Jesus himself, and that is now exemplified in baptism, as he says in verse 12. This is one of those passages that connects directly the Old Testament practice of circumcision with the New Testament practice of baptism, giving them a more or less kind of equivalence. So now, in God's community, we perform the outward visible sign of baptism as a person's entrance into this outward visible community, this family, the people of God. Now, there's a whole lot to it. We could talk about it for an hour, but... Essentially, what Paul is getting at here is he's trying to connect us. He's trying to show how baptism connects us to Jesus. He's saying, in baptism, you experience a kind of death and resurrection, that you are cleansed, that what Jesus did as your representative, he dies the death that you and I deserve and then overcomes the power of death in his resurrection such that the risen Jesus can now speak to you and say, come alive. He can make you alive because this is not the Jesus Memorial Society, you know, where we just get together and remember, you know, a nice guy from the past, but now he's dead. We believe that Jesus is resurrected and able to, in the present, speak powerfully into our lives, call us to life and give us fullness here and now. Let's look at how the apostle says it. In verse 12, you were buried with him in baptism. You were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. 
Then he says, and when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that deadness, that's our natural spiritual condition now because of the fall into sin. God made you alive together with him. When did he make us alive? When he forgave us all our trespasses. And I want you to notice he says that Jesus did five things here. Anything that might have excluded me or you from being part of God's people, Jesus has dealt with it. Anything and everything that would exclude us or keep us from knowing the love of God, Jesus has dealt with it. What did he do? It says he erased the record that stood against us. He set it aside. Sin has no more voice. He nailed it to the cross, which means it is dead. He has now disarmed the spiritual powers that would accuse us, which is what the, the word Satan or devil means. He's this accuser. He's disarmed the power of the accuser and has triumphed over him, triumphed over the powers of death and hell and Satan in his resurrection so that life gets the last word in our lives, not death, not sin. You might read back through it slowly and think, this applies to all people who are willing to come to Jesus, who humble themselves, who will just open their hands, who will just say, thank you, who will say, I need you. Sin is erased, set aside, nailed to the cross, disarmed. Jesus triumphs over it. A few years ago, I was walking with a friend of mine, a friend who had been one of my closest friends throughout life, but in his adult years had kind of wandered away from the church and from Jesus. He had made a lot of bad decisions that had brought a lot of pain in his life, and he had struggled and suffered, but he felt too ashamed to go to church again. We were talking about it, and he said he felt that he would only feel shame if he came, in, if he came to church. And I started to talk to him about how, you know, often... In uh, church, we have a time of corporate confession of our sins. And we do that on a regular basis as a church as a way of saying, we are not the perfect people. There's one perfect one, Jesus, that we look to. We all stand in need of his grace and forgiveness to some degree or another. As we say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we pray a corporate prayer of confession. And he had never really been part of churches that did this regularly and I said, and when, we do th- and when we pray this prayer of confession, the minister then stands up and reminds us that God has forgiven us in this assurance of pardon and says something like, and this is what I said to him, says something like, know that in Christ you are forgiven and be at peace. I say this as we're walking, and he is almost in tears by those very words. And he says, just you saying that gives me chills. He says, that's what I want to hear. <laughs> we have the, the gift and the vocation to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to people. And if you go to God, he won't be angry with you. If you go to Jesus, he will not shame you. He will say, all of that has been dealt with, erased, set aside, nailed to the cross. So how could our response to this good news be anything other than, as it says in verse 7, abounding with thanksgiving? 
Nothing else. No one else gives us what Jesus gives us. No philosopher or king or teacher or other worldview or leader or idea. Jesus himself is the only one who's had victory over evil. And he shares that with us. Jesus is the only one who is God in the flesh. He's the only one who is the divine image bearer, that is the true human, who's able to remake us in the divine image. He himself is the only wisdom of God. He is the power of God, the presence of God that renews us and gives us fullness. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you know all things. You know what everyone here is walking through. And you know the ones who have experienced emptiness and exhaustion. Hearing this encouraging word from Colossians that reminds us of your forgiveness, your goodness, your love for us, and the extreme lengths you have gone to to accomplish our salvation. May each person receive a fresh outpouring of fullness from you by the Holy Spirit. And then hear us now as we move to a prayer of thanksgiving. On the screen, there's gonna be a a thanksgiving prayer taken from the book of common prayer. I thought if the apostle says this is the proper response and this is the mark of a mature Christian, then we ought to practice this. Even if you might say, as I would say to myself, I don't, I'm not sure I'm a mature Christian a lot of times. But we can practice what we are becoming by doing this. Let's stand together. And I'm going to pray on our behalf the first part and ask you to join me in saying the we thank you Lord part. (laughs) All right. Let us give thanks to God our Father for all his gifts so freely bestowed upon us for the beauty and wonder of your creation in earth and sky and sea. We thank you, Lord, for our daily food and drink, our homes and families and our friends. We thank you, Lord, for minds to think and hearts to love and hands to serve. We thank you, Lord, for health and strength to work and time to rest and worship. We thank you, Lord, for all who are patient in suffering and faithful in adversity. We thank you, Lord, for all who earnestly seek after truth and all who labor for justice. We thank you, Lord. For all that is good and gracious in the lives of men and women, revealing the image of Christ, we thank you, Lord. For the communion of saints in all times and places, we thank you, Lord. Above all, we give you thanks for the great mercies and promises given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's all together say, To him be praise and glory with you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.